0: From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen.
1: An addict is doing something over and over again, you know, drinking over and over again or, or drugging, whatever it happens to be. You've lost your free will. That's what I'm trying to say. It's a long way around to, to get to it. Your your free will, your unobstructed free will, is no longer operative for an addict, and that's why, morally speaking, when an addict falls in the confessional, for example, looking at it this way, they're not culpable.
0: Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash not radio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash not seen radio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is the very reverend John E. Crane, Jr., He's Dean Emeritus of the Diocese of Western Michigan, and for many years, he has published and presented scholarly papers on the rule of St. Benedict. He's currently a reader, that means a scholar in residence, at the Huntington Library in San Marino, California, researching and publishing on ecclesial history. He's an oblate of St. Boniface Benedictine Abbey in Munich, Germany, and he has also been professionally involved in 12-step recovery work since 2003. Today, we're talking about his recent book, Recovering Benedict, Twelve Steps step living and the rule of benedict father john edward crane jr welcome to things not seen
1: thank you david it's a pleasure to be here
0: so before we begin our conversation for the sake of listeners who may come from a recovery background, and also so that you and I understand the parameters of the conversation that we're about to have, I'd like to have a conversation about our conversation. And for the sake of listeners who may be unfamiliar with the 12-step tradition, there are 12 steps, as the name implies, but there are also 12 traditions associated with that. And in particular, there's the 11th tradition. And to paraphrase it, the 11th Tradition says that we operate in this tradition by way of attraction and not promotion, and that those principles apply at the level of print, television, and radio. I will say for listeners, I come from a recovery tradition. Longtime listeners will remember that about me. But I will also say that I've spent a long time meditating on what it means to be a public voice who talks about recovery in the light of the 11th tradition. And I'm certain, because you've done work on this since 2003, that you, Father Crane, have also thought a lot about the 11th tradition and how anonymity plays into things like publishing a book or going on to a radio program to talk about the 12-step tradition. But for the sake of our listeners, if you'd be willing to share a little bit about what this word anonymity means to you in our conversation. I think that will help us begin to proceed so that everyone, both the listeners and you and I, understand what it is that we'll be talking about in this conversation and what we won't be talking about in this conversation.
1: Yeah, That's a good question, and it's a good uh, launching point for discussion. It's interesting that from the publication of the big book in 1939, the only addiction that was addressed was alcohol. Hence, AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. But the key word there uh, is the second A, which is anonymous. And what happened following 1939 was all other kinds of addictions, both what we call process addictions and substance uh, abuse addictions, came to light and received uh, encouragement and inspiration from the 12 steps and 12 traditions. But each group that was founded had a second A in their name, whatever it happened to be, AA being the first one, then of course NA for Narcotics Anonymous, and so on and so forth. So that the A was always present, and that was key in terms of the, if you will, the DNA of the recovery movement, the anonymous factor. And in terms of promotion and attraction in that 11th tradition, I think it's fair to say that those of us in recovery of any type are clearly interested in sharing only in the sense of attraction rather than promotion. This is not, we never advertise per se, that would be a promotional aspect, but we simply share and the sharing is key to, to as I mentioned in the, throughout the book, it's key to all the participation in meetings, uh, the sharing aspect. And we share simply as fellow human beings who are very incarnational, if you will, very much down to earth. And that's the key part of it. The specifics in terms of identification with the person are not part of the movement. So the anonymity factor is part of, if you will, is really part of the humility uh, in recovery.
0: And so, if I'm hearing you correctly, when we're talking about these movements, these 12 step movements, an important part of this is anonymity. And so, for the sake of our particular conversation, I'm going to own the fact that I participate in a recovery tradition, but I'm not necessarily going to speak about the details of my own addictions, the details of my own paths of recovery, and I certainly would not speak about any of the confidences that have been shared with me in any of the meetings that I've attended. And I'm assuming that you're setting this same kind of boundary in this conversation.
1: Absolutely.
0: Okay, with that then, let us take a step back. And for those that may be unfamiliar when we're using this term 12-step, you've already begun to talk a little bit about the history, but maybe if we could get just a brief overview of what we mean when we're talking about these 12-step traditions.
1: As I mentioned before, it all goes back to the research, development, and essentially the genius of what happened with AA with the big book, which started in the, in the mid-30s, but came to fruition in the book itself, which is simply entitled Alcoholics Anonymous. It's a big blue book. And the the essence of that is that there was a major problem with alcohol, with drunkenness, and there had been no way to to effectively address it. People have tried, of course, over over centuries. But what happened in, as I say, in the mid-30s, was the getting together of essentially three people. And one of those persons actually was a a Catholic priest who was uh, suffering from this particular addiction. And he was together with a physician, Dr. Bob and a Bill W., again, the anonymity factor, got together and came up with these 12 steps, these 12 progressions, if you will, which could help people who were addicted. And what's fascinating to me is it came up in another uh, interview conversation, actually. Uh, I I think this fellow was a Jesuit. I still haven't checked it out. I think his name was Father Dowling, Ed Dowling. I, I have to check that out. But in any case, the whole system of the 12 steps is built on spiritual definitely spiritual not therapeutic criteria and starts out with the acknowledgement of a higher power and works all the way through to the in the 11th step where you seek conscious contact with god or with the higher power by regular meditation by regular prayerfulness and so on and so forth so what i'm trying to say is that the whole progression of the 12 steps is basically just a rearrangement of spiritual principles to meet the needs of those suffering from
0: addiction. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is the very Reverend Canon, John Edward Crane, Jr. We're talking about his recent book, Recovering Benedict, 12-Step Living and the Rule of Benedict. Well, you've been talking to us a little bit about the 12-Step tradition and its origin and its spiritual connection and the ways in which it really represents in some real respects a spiritual journey for those that are entering into the process of recovery from addiction. But I'm interested also because your book, Recovering Benedict, doesn't just look at the spiritual traditions of the Twelve Steps, but it also looks at a very real spiritual tradition from the Catholic side of the fence, the Benedictine tradition, which is the foundation for most monastic life. And I'm interested, first of all, if you could tell our listeners a little bit about the rule of Benedict and the role that it has played in the development of church thinking over the past centuries.
1: be happy to do that. In the late 400s and early 500s, there lived a guy in Italy, which is currently Norcia, Norskia, Italy, by the name of Benedict, and he was absolutely disgusted with what was going on in Rome and the way the practice of the christian religion had degenerated and in general the the immorality the amorality of that situation and he fled to the desert essentially he went to a a remote place in order just to (laughs) bring in the 11th step here conscious contact with god he wanted to have conscious contact with his creator and he couldn't do it in roman society Others heard what he had done, and they went out and joined him. He didn't recruit anybody. They just came out. Again, I, I think the principle of attraction rather than promotion would come in here. I hadn't thought of that, but it's true. And so around him gathered any number of uh, people who were monks, which simply means people who wished to live a solitary life. And so it started up right there, and he, it grew. It just grew by itself such that he had to have some kind of format. This was not like our current century. This was pretty primitive, and you had a lot of wild people running around, and he had to have some order and harmony to his group. And so he created the rule of Benedict, which is, it sounds like a long thing, 73 chapters, but they're extremely short. It's a very short uh, rule. And it, it again was so Human, so incarnational, you've got to keep stressing the incarnational, I think, the human and the divine. But but Benedict was the most down-to-earth guy you'd want to meet. His rule is not uh, difficult, it's not hard, it's not ascetic. It's very human. And that is why Mm -hmm. the rule itself, the Benedictine rule, has become... It is a father Western monasticism, and that document has become the foundation document for practically everything that followed it in the Western Church.
0: Well, and this is one thing that you stress again and again in your book, Recovering Benedict, and that is the flexibility of the Benedictine rule and the pragmatism, the real practical applicability of the Benedictine rule. And as we're moving towards our first break, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that flexibility and practicality.
1: The rules is quite detailed, with 73 chapters, and you have 10 chapters just on which Psalms are recited when and how. But Benedict says at the end of that very lengthy series of 10 chapters, he says, but if the abbot or the prior or whoever, in other words, the religious superior, let's say, sees or thinks that a different arrangement is better, go at it, have at it, no problem. And all the way through, it's it's interesting. Even in the fortieth chapter, where he talks about how much alcohol they're allowed to have—beer or wine—and it's a certain amount. And even in that, he's flexible. And in the food and everything else, he's flexible and is not. You must have only x number of meals and x number of this, that, the other thing. There's always a a liberality to it. Certainly, he's a very liberal if you want to use that term, interpreter of of religion. And that flexibility, I always think of how one builds a bridge. You can't build it too firmly, too tight, or it'll break if there's any expansion or contraction. One has to allow in the engineering of a bridge enough space for expansion, contraction. And that same flexibility is clearly in Benedict. Now, there were other rules that were created that were extremely abstemious, very tough, very ascetic, very penitential. They didn't last. But Benedict's rule has lasted because of this. And the flexibility is simply the human side, the human part of the equation of the incarnation, human divine. And Benedict shows that in great balance.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is the very Reverend Canon, John Edward Crane, Jr. We're talking about his recent book, Recovering Benedict, 12-Step Living, and the Rule of Benedict. We'll be back in a moment. Each week here at Things Not Seen, we dive deep into the tough questions about culture and faith. Questions are a sign of growth, and it's way easier to hear the answers when others join in the asking. That's why I'm excited for our sponsor, BeADisciple.com. It's the social hub for all your spiritual quandaries. One click away at BeADisciple.com. Scroll through their affordable, ecumenical, accredited, short-term online courses, all taught by content experts. Here you'll be in the company of others where it's safe to discuss hard questions. If you have questions and are looking to grow, enroll in a course to today and ask away at beadisciple.com Welcome back to Things Not Seen. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find nearly 10 years' worth of these conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Our guest today is the very Reverend Canon John Edward Crane, Jr. We're talking about his recent book, Recovering Benedict, 12-Step Living, and the Rule of Benedict. One of the things that struck me about the structure of your book, Recovering Benedict, was how familiar it felt to me. And let me explain to listeners what I mean by that. For those of us who are in the recovery tradition, there are many books of daily meditations that are available to us. And some of the ones that I have used often in my own recovery have titles like One Day at a Time and The Courage to Change and Hope for Today. And they are divided into a little meditative reflection that you sit with Sometimes there's a scripture passage, but it's brief, but it's a way of starting your day or being with you in the middle of the day to help to keep you grounded and mindful of your walk in recovery. One of the things that struck me about your book, Recovering Benedict, is that it seems to have a very similar structure of daily reflections that are brief, but are designed to really bring out these wider questions. And so I'd like to ask you, first of all, about that structure. Was this intentional? A way of constructing the book. And how was it that you began to weave together not only your own reflections around recovery, but also the rule of Benedict?
1: I was inspired by the work of Joan Chittister, Sister Joan Chittister of the Benedictine Order. She's from the Erie community of Benedictines. And she had published a book where the little rule snippets for the readings for each day were followed by her reflections. And I thought that was a particularly good model to use. In fact, the Erie community is, uh, when you read my introductory material in the book, the Erie community gave me permission to use their translation, which is a very modern, inclusive, uh, up-to-date translation of the rule. So that format struck me as something which was quite viable and Joan's reflections, she has, it's in two editions. She's, the second edition is the current one. But in each edition, she's bringing in other faith traditions. She's bringing in the social gospel dimension. And she's looking at it from a particular viewpoint. Excellent. She's a marvelous writer. But I thought this would be absolutely perfect to do the same kind of approach from the recovery tradition. Because I am a Benedictine, I'm an oblate oblate Benedictine, and I read the rule on a daily basis, it struck me that the two are really akin to one another. And so that's why I decided to take the daily snippets, which I read every day. But by the daily snippets, let me explain what that means for the uh, listeners. The rule is supposed to be read uh, in monasteries three times a year to the monks. And what they do is they will, for a given date, for example, I've just opened the book to January 16th, May 17th, September 16th. On those days, you always read from chapter three in the rule. So the snippets come back three times a year. And as I kept going through these little snippets, it occurred to me how marvelous it would be and um, how natural it would be to reflect from the recovery standpoint on each segment, each step from the rule. And that's how it came about.
0: What I'm hearing is that there's a certain genius to the arrangement of this book, because when a reader to take your example, opens to January 16th and reads that on January 16th, they're reflecting not only with their recovery community or communities that they participate in, their various 12-step communities or other support communities, but they're also reading with all of those that participate in this practice of reading through the rule of Benedict certain segments on certain days. So they're participating in, if you will, multiple clouds of witnesses. Now, when I say it that way, have I got it right or have I missed Something.
1: No, you got it absolutely right. That's absolutely on target.
0: And so when that is happening, I I wonder what you can say to my listeners about the role of otherness in recovery, the role of others in recovery. How important is it that you're never recovering alone, but you're recovering with others in community and walking with one another in humility and hospitality? I think that's an important piece that maybe some people that are unfamiliar with the recovery tradition don't know about and maybe would benefit from hearing about.
1: Well, it's absolutely true. And one's home group, as they use that terminology, one's home group for recovery, the meeting that one usually goes to, in addition to other ones, but there's one that's your home place. That's your your major community. And that would be similar to, let us say, the monastery or the abbey that you were a monk of. That's your primary place, but you are connected. Uh, to all the rest of the monasteries or abbeys in your particular area. And I think I know that when we read those various terms from other literature in the recovery literature, we speak about the road of happy destiny. That's one of the big terms that's used a lot. We talk about a road that there are many travelers. It's truly a freeway, which is crowded with all kinds of vehicles. And those are all of us in recovery of one type or another. And so there is a wider community. And one of the things I do like about it, now that you've mentioned this, David, I had not thought about it, but it's, it's quite true that those who follow the daily readings in my book, they're not only following along with every Benedictine in the world <laughs> who's reading those same readings, but they're following along with fellow travelers on this road of happy destiny that we travel, those of us in recovery.
0: One of the things that I like about that is that you're really connecting the idea of pilgrimage in some way. And uh, oftentimes we think about monastics as staying in one place. But there's a real kind of image that i have of the person in recovery on a journey almost to a holy place on a journey to a place where others are walking that same road and there's mutual aid along the road and so i there are a lot of images that are coming up for me at this part of the conversation and i'm curious kind of how as i'm saying these things to you how do these resonate with you do these seem like they're landing in the right place or would you say them in a different way
1: I wouldn't at all say them in a different way. And I think I'd almost like to invite you to co-author another book with me as you have great ideas, which pop up here. No, it's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. And it's to a holy place. You mentioned a pilgrimage to a holy place. But remember that the word holy is the same root and the same meaning as wholesome. And so in our journey to recovery, we are seeking holiness in the sense of wholesomeness, in the sense of healing, all those words are related. They're all uh, Germanic words, basically.
0: Now, a moment ago, you said something interesting that I want to circle back to. You said that you reached out to the community that surrounds Sister Joan Chittister, and you asked their permission to utilize the translation of the Rule of Benedict that they had published, and you said that in part you were doing this because it was a more modern and inclusive translation. But I'm curious, did you also have to reach out to anyone in the 12-step community? Is the 12-step community arranged like a monastic community in the sense that there is a An authority that you would go to for permission to use these ideas and these concepts in a book like Recovering Benedict?
1: That's a good question. The answer is actually no, because the whole, how shall I put this, the whole realm of recovery is again something which is owned on a very broad band basis. What I was requesting there from the Erie community was simply I used their translation of the rule completely 100% and this the snippets are the identical from their translation and for that i had to request obviously a specific permission but you see the whole realm of recovery in the anonymity aspect of it is one which is quite amorphous we don't have any abbot or any religious superior i forget the exact wording from the from the literature
0: but it's a shared It's a shared authority, if you will. That helps me to understand the ways in which you not only found latitude with writing this book, but also the ways in which you felt a sense of responsibility to certain communities and the different levels of responsibility. So that's actually a very helpful answer. Before we go on, let me take a moment and reintroduce you. For those that have just joined us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is the very Reverend Canon John Edward Crane, Jr., and we're talking about his recent book, Recovering Benedict, Twelve Step Living and the Rule of Benedict. I want to shift gears a little bit. We've been talking so far about the structure of your book, Recovering Benedict, but now I'd like to talk a little bit more about the substance. And the audience of your book are those that are walking the walk of recovery. And one of the things that you say about addiction early on in your book, Recovering Benedict, is that addiction presents to us a fantasy world, and I, I was curious about that, because years ago, uh, when I first started Things Not Seen, one of the things that got me into doing this kind of work was an interview by Terry Gross, who is the host of a radio show called Fresh Air. And she had on an anthropologist by the name of T.D. Lerman. And Lerman had been working with communities that have a kind of practice that they call Coffee with Jesus. And so they set out uh, a kind of a, an extra plate, an extra cup of coffee, Coffee and they have meditative time on a regular basis with the divine in that very concrete way. And at one point, Terry Gross said to T.D. Lerman, well, didn't you feel a responsibility to say to these people, you need to give up your imaginary friends? And so I'm I'm curious about how you, in talking about the fantasy world of addiction, which I agree with, it presents to us a false reality, how you would counter a criticism like Terry Grosses, that you're simply countering one fantasy world with another fantasy world?
1: That's an excellent question, David, and it immediately calls to mind the Jesuit, the Ignatian spiritual exercises, and the whole Ignatian spirituality, which essentially invites us to imagine. The Ignatian spiritual exercise is to place ourselves in a situation, let's say a biblical scene or a gospel scene, uh, to place ourselves there in one aspect or another, to imagine how that scene would have been impacted by our presence. Uh, And that is a very useful, very positive thing. And that, I would say, is good imaginary friends. (laughs) I have to laugh. Uh, That was was quite a question. (laughs) Give up your imaginary friends. But in the Ignatian system, That's very helpful, and uh, it's a marvelous kind of thing. I want to speak on the fantasy aspect, the negative fantasy aspect, and that is that when one is in one's addiction, when one is, "quotes" acting out, as the literature uh, puts it, Everything else is up for grabs. Everything else is is blotted out. Reality is blotted out. One is in one's addiction, and there's nothing else but the next drink or the next this or the next that. And so that's what I meant by the fantasy. But there is a major distinction between, I think, what this little coffee clutch with Jesus, which was a great title in itself, what that was trying to establish as a meditative framework was very positive and very good. The other is not.
0: Let's stay with that for a moment. This fantasy world that addiction presents to us, where other realities and other connections are blotted out. One of the ways that I've often thought about that is the line that I think comes from Martin Luther, and I may be wrong about this, but it's the notion of the homo incurvatus. In other words, the person who continually is curving tighter and tighter in upon themselves, like almost a wound up spring in a watch or a clock. And that tightness is, there's an energy there, but it's a very kind of inwardly directed, almost destructive energy. And so when I'm using that kind of image, this notion of the homo incurvatus, am I following what you mean by the fantasy world, or would you say it in a different way?
1: No, that's an excellent expansion of what I said. And uh, frankly, I was not familiar with that uh, terminology, but it's excellent, and it, it sounds like it very well could be Luther. Yes, that that's right on the money.
0: And so if this is the case, if we're looking at someone who is in addiction and we see them turning and turning ever tighter in upon themselves, or perhaps a listener themselves may feel themselves turning ever tighter in upon themselves— How does that begin to change? What are some of the ways in which a book like Recovering Benedict could be of value to someone who either feels themselves going into that spiral or they see someone else going into that spiral?
1: I think that's a good question. And I I would say that the liberality in the rule, the lack of incurvatus, if you will, the lack of tightening in on oneself Uh, over over winding the watch, so to speak. The lack of that, the other direction of that is seen both in the recovery literature as well as in the rule of Benedict. Benedict is an essentially flexible Christian. And so I think that what it would do is instead of encouraging one's tightening in on oneself in the wrong direction, it would change the direction of that person who is uh, suffering addiction to show that the liberty with Christ hath made us free is in some one of the epistles, that liberty, that freedom, that freeingness is something which can be perhaps helped on a daily basis by these very short readings. These are very, This is a very small book. <laughs> and so the readings themselves from the rule are very uh, snippet-like, very short. And the reflections are also short and to the point, but embedded within the essential philosophy of both the rule and the recovery community is that freeingness, that lack of stricture, that lack of going over
0: the top, if you will. So if I'm hearing you correctly, it's not that recovery is becoming more straight-laced and tightening yourself down and restricting yourself, but I'm almost hearing you saying that it's actually the person who is in addiction who is tightly laced and is restricted, and that as they begin recovery, one of the things that they experience is greater freedom and greater possibility. Have I heard that right? Yes, you have so what strikes me about that is there was an early Christian document, and I forget which century it's from, but it's from the first or second century of the Christian church called the Didache. And one of the things that strikes me about the Didache is they have a section in that document on baptism, and they say you have to baptize using a font of kind of what they call living water, flowing water. But then immediately they say, but if you don't have the font of living water, it's okay to use still water. And if you have still water, it should be room temperature. But if you don't have to room temperature, it's okay for it to be a little hot or a little cold. And if you don't have an entire font, it's okay to sprinkle. And what strikes me about that is how flexible it is. It, it recognizes that different communities are going to have different opportunities to engage with the broad spirit of the rule, and they allow for that flexibility. Now, what I'm hearing you saying in the Rule of Benedict and also in Recovery is that part of the genius of it is this same kind of flexibility. As I'm making those connections, am I grounding this in the right place, or would you say it in a different way?
1: I think it's wonderful the way you've expressed that, and I think it goes back to the nature of the true nature of Jesus Christ.
0: In in what way does it go back to the true nature of Jesus Christ?
1: Some portray Jesus as being very straight-laced, as you put it, very very tight, very unbending. And others of us see Jesus as a lot more flexible. And I think the flexibility of Jesus is shown in that early Didache didache, uh, document, which is a a major document liturgically. And it's absolutely true. And, and, And Benedict, pulled on that. Benedict was in that mindset. And this, I think, is the original mindset of Jesus. Jesus was just not what some portray him to be today. And I think that picks up on it. I think that's why it really works.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is the very Reverend John Edward Crane, Jr. He's Dean Emeritus of the Diocese of Western Michigan, and for many years, he's published and presented scholarly papers on the rule of St. Benedict. He's currently a visiting scholar known as a reader at the Huntington Library in San Marino, California, researching and publishing on ecclesiastical history. Today, we're talking about his recent book, Recovering Benedict, 12-Step Living and the Rule of Benedict. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find nearly 10 years of these programs, all available for your listening pleasure for free. Our guest today is the very Reverend John Edward Crane, Jr. He's Dean Emeritus of the Diocese of Western Michigan, and for many years he has published and presented scholarly papers on the rule of St. Benedict. Today we're talking about his recent book, Recovering Benedict, Twelve Step Living and the Rule of Benedict. There's a point in your book, Recovering Benedict, that I want to lift up. You talk about... uh, turn away from your own will. And you say Benedict actually quotes the text from, I believe it's Ecclesiastes, turn away from your own will. And you say he could never have imagined how appropriate his words would later become for addicts. The addict's will is warped. Because of already having yielded to past temptation so often, the addictive will tend to yield again and yield again with little, if any, reflection. And so I want to ask, a question both about this idea of the warped will and how reflection can help a will to become unwarped.
1: The addict's will is warped because it's warped insofar as one repetitive, an addict is doing something over and over again, you know, drinking over and over again or Drugging, whatever it happens to be, you've lost your free will. That's what I'm trying to say. It's a long way around to, to get to it. Your your free will, your unobstructed free will, is no longer operative for an addict, and that's why, morally speaking, when an addict falls in the confessional, for example, looking at it this way, they're not culpable. They're not culpable because the the condition of sufficient reflection. And uh, the full use of the will is not operative. So by saying the will is warped, I'm saying that through repetitive indulgences in one's addiction, one has lost the power to resist. Once, once one gets into it, your will is shot. You, you take the first drink or the first sip, and you're finished. And anything after that, you drink a bottle or what have you, you are not culpable morally for that.
0: I think this is an important point for maybe some of my listeners, because there's a myth about addiction, that it's simply, I'm making bad choices, and why don't you make better choices? And you've begun to speak to that. But I I think it's important for us to dig a little deeper into this. At what level should we be talking about addiction, not as a matter of choice, but using language that may be more like illness or a loss of choice? And I'd love to hear more of your thoughts on that
1: it's simply put in one word it's a disease it's a disease it is an illness it is not has nothing to do with morality because if one is truly an addict one is that dna is in there somehow you know that there's science has proven that addiction can be passed down through the dna and sometimes even through the the, the grandfather was an alcoholic. The son is, and and his, the grandson passes down sometimes down the male side, sometimes down the female side. There's all kinds of science around this that I, I've only nibbled at the fringe of it. I don't really, I couldn't get into it in great detail. But what I'm trying to say is, if that flaw, if that genetic flaw is there, you're obviously not responsible for the flaw being there. You had no choice in that. But secondarily. When you ring that bell and you start taking a drink, you find out you can't stop. So what I'm saying is that when one is in the addiction itself, one cannot stop once one starts. And it's not a matter of willpower. That's that, That's the error of the moralist who is saying, well, it's just a moral flaw. You can stop if you want to. You can't if you're in that because your free will is no longer operative.
0: So we have an example of a person who takes the first drink or the first puff or the first engagement with what will be their addictive trigger. And then they find themselves falling into this addictive habituation. It's it, it becomes something greater than their will. And I'm I'm thinking about this in light of the fact that a book like One Day at a Time, which we mentioned earlier, which is a series of daily readings, or a book like yours, Recovering Benedict, which is set up for a set of readings that you read through on a daily basis three times a year. This, in some ways, is a counter habit. It's a different habit to the addictive habit. And I'm wondering about how building a habit like reading and reflecting using a book like yours, Recovering Benedict, how is that beneficial against something like, let's call it a dark or an interned habit like addiction?
1: Excellent question. What it is, I would use the term rehabituation.
0: And what do you mean when you say rehabituation? Can you flesh out for us what that means? Sure.
1: What you're doing is instead of going down that track of the bad habit, you consciously replace it with something which is a wholesome, healing, helpful, i.e., These daily readers, in terms of fulfilling the 11th step of meditating and so on and so forth, getting closer to God on a regular basis through reading and reflection, you are literally reprogramming yourself. You are rehabituating and you are making a good habit. A habit is something that you you acquire by doing it frequently and all the time and at the same time and so on and so forth. Yeah, this is an excellent way. And I think that's part of the whole 12-step thing. The whole 12-step thing is new habits, going to meetings, having a sponsor, reading the literature, et cetera, et cetera. You see what I'm saying? So that I think that it really is the key. And that's probably the major key to the success of the whole 12-step program. There's a regularity to it. And don't forget, the uh, English word regular has to do is originally the Latin word regula, which means rule.
0: One of the things that I I appreciate about what you're saying is just the way in which the systematization of this can be beneficial. And it's not, and I'm hearing you continually through the conversation saying it's not a restrictive systemization. It's a flexible systematization at the level of recovery, but also at the level of Benedict's rule. It's designed to be practically useful for people in specific situations. But now I want to flip that coin a little bit because we've been focusing on the ways in which something like the rule of Benedict or your book, Recovering Benedict or the 12 step tradition the way in which this can be beneficial for the addict. And I think that there's something that we need to speak to for a listener who may be thinking, yeah, I know some people who are addicts, they're in my family. But this could also be useful for someone who's on the outside of addiction, who is in a relationship with someone who is addicted, who is journeying with someone who is in recovery. What are some of the ways in which a book like yours, Recovering Benedict, could be useful for someone who doesn't define themselves as an addict, but maybe is in a primary relationship with someone who is addicted?
1: We know of the groups called Al-Anon and Es-Anon and all these Anon groups, which are precisely set up for those who are in relationship with uh, those suffering from addiction. And I think that these daily devotionals are very helpful for them as well, because in a sense, they're able to vicariously participate in what their loved one is going through. And I think that's very helpful. In a sense, it brings them into that larger recovery community, even though they're not primary members, as it were, they are associate members insofar as they associate with people who are suffering from the disease of addiction. And I think it's very helpful. I know that it's very helpful. I know that people in the Al-Anon community have their own daily readers and i know that it works it's very helpful indeed it it's one it's the when we speak of the recovery community we're really not speaking only of the primary people who are those who are in addiction themselves but we're also including all those tangentially related the community is much larger than simply those who are suffering
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is the very reverend canon, John Edward Crane Jr., and we're talking about his recent book, Recovering Benedict, Twelve Step Living and the Rule of Benedict. One thing that struck me about the middle of your book, Recovering Benedict, is you get into the portion of the Rule of Benedict, where Benedict is talking in great detail about things like the liturgical practices of the monastic community. You read this many psalms if it's wintertime, you read these kind of psalms if it's summertime, and one of the things that struck me about your approach to that was you didn't go tediously through all of the minutia that Benedict laid out, but instead you said, let's take some of the highlights of these psalms. Let's take one line from each psalm and use that as our source of meditation. And you say at several points in your book, Recovering Benedict, we could spend hours on these psalms. And that's not the task here. What struck me about that approach to a text like Benedict's Rule is that you were applying something that I have heard often in my own journey with recovery, take what you like and leave the rest. And I'm wondering about how you applied that notion of take what you like and leave the rest to approaching this notion of weaving together Benedict and recovery in a larger sense than just the Psalms. Because in one sense, that could be a very subjective, this works for me and I'm just going to, I'm going to tell you what works for me. But I didn't see that approach at all. But I felt that spirit in what you were doing. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the choices that you made as an author, about when to apply that and when instead to say, no, but this is really important and we need to stick with this for a while.
1: Yeah, I was, when I first conceived the book, I asked myself, what the heck am I going to do with these 10 chapters that are essentially liturgical rubrics that are not going to fly for most people's interest? I'm a kind of a liturgy buff, but even for myself, it's it's in-house stuff. And I wondered, how the heck am I going to—I could eliminate them and just leave those 10 chapters out? And I said, no, I'm not going to leave the 10 chapters out. It's part of the rule. There's got to be something in there. And there was something in there for those of us uh, in recovery. So I guess I want to say that's a wonderful principle. I'd forgotten that one that you just mentioned. Take what you uh, want and leave the rest. But if you think about it, uh, that's what Benedict said when he wrote this rule. When he, At various points in the rule, he says to the superior, but if this doesn't work for you, do it a different way. Make a variation. Improvise. And I think that's really key. And I think that flexibility, we keep coming back to that, David, that same word, flexibility. It's almost like a byword.
0: What I'm hearing in that answer is you have to look at the person who is on this journey of recovery. And you have to ask yourself, if I insist that they adhere to this particular expectation, I'm going to lose them. But if instead I can be flexible about this expectation, I may keep them for at least one day longer. And that, that again, is a very strong phrase in the recovery community. We're trying to do this one day at a time. Sometimes it's one hour at a time. Sometimes it's one moment at a time. You hold on and you ask for the serenity to just get through the next piece of time and pray for sanity in the midst of that. And so what I'm hearing in what you're saying is that the flexibility that you see in the rule of Benedict, the flexibility that you're trying to apply as you're translating this rule of Benedict into the 12-step tradition, it's a flexibility that's designed to really be conscious of the fact that we don't want to lose the life if we save the rule. We want to lose the rule in order to save the life. Now, as I'm characterizing this, I'm using my words, not yours. And I'm I'm curious if you're hearing the spirit of what you intended there or if you'd say it a different way.
1: I couldn't have said it better myself, quite frankly.
0: If that's the case, then I I think that some people may come away from this thinking, then this is anything goes. This is wishy-washy. It's simply, I look at the addict, and if the addict says that they want to do X today, then we do that. And I'm not hearing that spirit either. So for that listener who has gotten this far in the conversation, and they may still have that mischaracterization about your work, how would you correct that misapprehension that we're simply allowing the addict, we're simply allowing the person in recovery to write their own script?
1: I'm reminded of a, a sign that was posted at the entrance to a church. And it's a very liberal church, and the sign—it's the sign—says it all to me. It said, "In this church, all are welcome, but not anything goes." <laughs> I don't know if that, I don't know if that uh, helps you at all in in, in answering your question. But uh, no, it's not an anything goes thing. I mean, if it were an anything goes thing, it wouldn't have lasted a century. And uh, so this rule has lasted since about the year five twenty.
0: And as we're moving towards the end of our conversation, I want to loop back to the first part of our conversation where we talked about anonymity and we set some ground rules. I'm not going to ask you about your own recovery. I'm not going to ask you about any details about your walk with anyone else who's been in recovery. But if you're willing... I'd be interested to hear how working on this book, Recovering Benedict, and living for a season with both the Rule of Benedict and an intensive meditation on the Twelve Steps, how has your spiritual walk changed as a result of writing this project?
1: That's a great question. I finished this book in uh, my abbey. I'm an oblate of uh, St. Boniface Abbey uh, in central Munich, Germany. I spent four months there finishing it, and I think living that. Whenever I, I am at the monastery, I live the same life that the monks do. I'm at all the services and what have you. I think just the fact that regularity, ruleness, if you will, a regularity of the monastic life blended so well with the writing of this book that it's actually improved my own spiritual life in terms of my how I structure my day my own regular my own rule of life and I think by blending these two aspects the religious and the the other part of my life it it has contributed to the systematic much more systematic way of living which is key I think in recovery when we can't be just a will-o'-the-wisp anything goes type of thing it's got to be regular because that whole philosophy of life of do what you like, uh, do what feels good, what have you, that is playing right into addiction, and that doesn't work. But I think the writing of the book, the fusing, if you will, the melding of these two great works uh, of the Ruler Benedict and the big book and that whole philosophy, of that, that whole melding of those together has helped me personally.
0: Well, Father John Edward Crane, I have to say, As a person who has been walking the journey of recovery myself, I found your book to be refreshing. I learned a tremendous amount from it. I was so thrilled to realize the parallels between this treasure of monasticism and this treasure that has helped to save my life, the big book and the 12-step tradition. I want to thank you, first of all, for taking the time to think about this and to write the book, but also thank you so much for taking time today to talk about it with me and my listeners.
1: You're most welcome, David. I'm happy to be with you.
0: We've been speaking today with the very Reverend Canon John Edward Crane, Jr. He's Dean Emeritus of the Diocese of Western Michigan, and for many years he's published and presented scholarly papers on the rule of St. Benedict. Today we've been talking about his recent book, Recovering Benedict, Twelve Step Living, and the Rule of Benedict. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's Facebook.com slash Radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.